This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. It has been, we have to admit, uh, a bit of a hiatus here between the last time we were on, um, on the airwaves. That's, that's an archaic term, isn't it? I guess more properly, the last time we were uh, on our website with new material. But by God, we're here today, and, um, and you are too, dear listeners. So <laughs> welcome. We, uh, we hope in the uh, weeks and months to come to be a little more regular in, in churning out um, additions to our body of work. But uh, life, shall we say, has been getting in the way. We're going to do the best we can, though. As, and I have to say that I have a huge wad of material that is piled up, which has been set aside at this program. Um, unfortunately, a lot of it is really bad news. So we've decided to make an effort today to balance it off with some really good news. And we're going to make every attention to start out a little light on today's program. So um, I think I'll begin with this. A father passing by his son's bedroom was astonished to see the bed nicely made and everything picked up. Then he saw an envelope propped prominently on the pillow. It was addressed, Dad. With the worst premonition, he opened the envelope and read the letter with trembling hands. Dear Dad, it is with great regret and sorrow that I'm writing you. I have to elope with my new girlfriend because I wanted to avoid a scene with Mom and you. I have found real passion with Stacy. She's so nice. But I knew you would not approve of her because of her tattoos, tight motorcycle clothes, and because she is so much older than I am. And Dad... She's pregnant. Stacy said we will be very happy together. She owns a trailer in the woods and has a stack of firewood for the whole winter. Stacy has opened my eyes to the fact that marijuana really doesn't hurt anyone. We'll be growing it for ourselves and trading it with other people in the commune. Don't worry, Dad. I'm 15. I know how to take care of myself. Someday I'm sure we'll be back to visit, so you'll get to know your many grandchildren. Love, your son, Joshua. P.S. Dad, none of the above is true. I'm over at Jason's house. I just wanted to remind you there's worse things in life than the school report that's on the kitchen table. Please call me when it's safe for me to come home. I think that's especially apt for some of the bad news we're going to work around today. But let's keep it light again at first. Uh, There's an item here I've been sitting on since last January. It was one of those year-end summaries they like to have, like in Parade magazine. This was a reference to some songs. Notable songs and, and how, they, how they got written. Far and away, my favorite anecdote came from Christopher Cross, referring to his 1981 monster hit, Sailing. Cross noted that his song was inspired by a high school friend who took him sailing to ease his anxieties. Many years later, he joked that it was probably a good thing that it, to distract him, his friend hadn't taken him bowling And, of course, dear listener, we're all living in a meme fest these days, aren't we, as people send around these little pithy pithy summaries and uh, funny statements. I like this one. When I was young, I was poor. But after years of honest and painstaking work, I'm no longer young. All right, we have quite a backlog of the good, the bad, and the ugly, or at least in this case, we have quite a backlog of um, the week magazines, Good Week for Bad Week summaries, which we generally convert into the good, the bad, and the ugly. So, Mr. Millen, why don't we start out with some of those? 
All right, according to the week back, this is back in April, it was a good week for Vladimir Putin, who was at that point officially the most handsome man in Russia, according to a poll of 2,000 Russians. Fond the pollsters about the strutting, often shirtless 68-year-old dictator, neither actors nor athletes nor other politicians can compete with him today. To which we would add, he's also a singer. If you've never checked out uh, Vladimir Putin belting out the Russian national anthem on, on YouTube, you, you might want to consider checking that one out. And it was a bad week back then for what I guess I would call victims of the woke, with the news that immigration activists were fighting plans to name a Chicago middle school after Barack Obama. Said the activists, Obama's record of deportations makes him less problematic than slave owner Thomas Jefferson, whose name is being removed from the school. But if you're removing the name of Thomas Jefferson, one oppressor, the name of Obama is another oppressor, said activist Julie Contreras. Sure, Barack Obama, oppressor. Speaking of real oppressors, it was an ugly week that same week for sacrificing for the cause with the news that after former President Trump called on his supporters to boycott Coca-Cola, whose CEO had criticized the Republican voter laws in Georgia, he was photographed the next day at Mar-a-Lago with a bottle of Diet Coke, imperfectly hidden behind his desk-mounted telephone. Anyway, a week later, it was a good week for facing the music, or maybe we'd say consequences, after the lawyer for Thomas Webster, age 54, who's accused of beating a police officer with a metal pole and trying to gouge his eyes during the January 6th Capitol riot, said it's been a shock for the retired police officer and former Marine to find himself in jail alongside people serving time for inner city crimes. Aww. Wasn't that just too bad? And it was conversely a bad week that week for just asking questions after right-wing rocker Ted Nugent used a Facebook Live session to claim, quote, I'm addicted to truth, logic, and common sense. And in that same spirit, demanded to know, quote, why we weren't shut down for COVIDs 1 through 18, end quote. Well, Ted, to learn about that, you'd have to do a little bit of reading. And of course, I guess, you know, you'd have to know how to read. Chris Mishmula does point out that it is possible that he has been affected from his bout of cat scratch fever. <laughs> And uh, that same week, not so long ago, it was an ugly week, surely, for blogging, with the news that Donald Trump's new website generated only 212,000 likes and shares, compared with his Twitter following of 88 million and Facebook following of 32 million. Trump nonetheless said that blogging was, quote, more elegant, unquote, than tweeting. All right, let's go for a third round. It was a good week, last week, actually for big oil with the news that a republican naturally state leg with the news that a republican and we have to say naturally state lawmaker from Louisiana wants to make the state a fossil fuel sanctuary state the bill from representative Danny McCormick an oil company executive wouldn't you know it would prohibit prohibit state and local employees from enforcing any federal environmental law directive or tax that might hurt the oil industry. Asked if this were constitutional, McCormick said, I don't know who would have a problem with it, honestly. 
And before that, it was a bad week for Liberty with the news that Fox News host Tucker Carlson advised his viewers that if they see a child wearing a face mask while playing outside, they are, quote, morally obligated to attempt to prevent it, unquote, and should, in fact, quote, call the police immediately, contact Child Protective Services, and keep calling until someone arrives, unquote. And in our third bit of Republican lunacy, we even note that it was an ugly week for revisionist history. After former Republican presidential candidate, he was a, he was a senator from Pennsylvania, didn't get very far in the Republican presidential race, thank God, Rick Santorum told a crowd of college students that there was nothing there before the arrival of white Europeans on the North American continent. I mean, yes, we have Native Americans, he added, but candidly, there isn't much Native American culture in American culture. All right, fourth and final round. It was a good week in April. It was a good week a few weeks ago for those determined never to offend anyone, which Mr. Millen cases to add does not include radio parallax. But no, the good folks at Michigan State University apparently are renaming its LGBT Resource Center to include people who have no gender identity or interest in sex. Senate Director Jesse Beal explained that, quote, not all identities are included in acronyms, especially as new identity terms are generated. He said the new name, the Gender and Sexuality Campus Center, will help asexual and agender community members feel welcome. Thank God. And uh, it was a bad week, not too long ago, for France. With the news that a Belgian farmer moved a small rectangular stone, unaware that it had marked the border between France and Belgium since 1819. Reportedly, the stone's relocation has expanded Belgium by seven and a half feet into former French territory. The local mayor wants it moved back to avoid a diplomatic incident. And finally, it was an ugly week recently for just having too much time on your hands at home after the American Society of Plastic Surgeons has said there was a 22% increase in butt implants in 2020. Perhaps they noted because lots of sitting leads to, quote, general flattening, unquote. Try hard as I might to try and think of a wisecrack to make about butt implants. I'm stuck. All right. Some years back, we, we poked some fun on this program about the fact that the Mars Corporation, makers of chocolates, had funded a, some sort of institute at UC Davis to, to further promote the, the health-giving benefits of, of chocolate. And supposedly, if you stick to dark chocolate, there, there are some. But I have to confess, we've always been a little bit skeptical here at Radio Parallax about, you know, the nature of some of this research. And our skepticism was not improved after we stumbled upon this item from New Scientist magazine, which was that the color of a chocolate bar's packaging influences our expectations of how the chocolate will taste, according to research done at the University of Campinas in Brazil. These fine researchers down there uh, concluded that a black wrapper leaves us anticipating bitter chocolate, but pink packaging leads us to expect a sweet bar. Commenting on this, uh, some stooge at the University of Oxford said, color plays an important role in setting our expectations. 
The magazine notes that in the future, researchers hope to test whether the color of packaging also affects how we think the chocolate tastes. I guess this is proof that not all research being done out there is of equal value to humanity. Mr. McMillan senses a possible ignoble award in some of this. All right, there's so many bad things going on, so many things we're going to have to talk about that are less than pleasing that I think I'm going to, I'm like I'm going to move next to the pile of, of good news. Here's an item also from our favorite science magazine, New Scientist. It noted in February that nature sanitizes about 38 million tons of human waste a year. Evidently, Alison Parker at Cranfield University in the UK and her team looked at 48 cities in Africa, Asia, North America, and South America and analyzed how much human waste is produced and where it ends up by reviewing existing data. They looked at waste systems not connected to sewers. These included pit latrines and septic tanks. Liquid waste from pit latrines and excess water from septic tanks can gradually filter through soil. In areas where the groundwater isn't too shallow, this can remove the waste, which is a very good thing. With 892 million people, mainly in low- and middle-income countries, using this type of waste system, the team estimates that nature safely treats about 38 tons of waste a year. The article goes on to note that unsafe sanitation is responsible for 775,000 deaths a year and more than 4 billion people don't have access to safe sanitation, a third of them in low-income nations. So it is good to note that sanitation that involves the ground naturally treating waste can be a part of the solution. Yes, it is good to know, but Radio Parallax at the present time is not advocating the use of pit latrines in our nation's suburbs. Not even if you've got a neighbor that you really, really hate. Now, a good friend of mine gave me a, uh, one of those uh, decks where you peel off each, each day of the year. You know, they've got various things on them. You know, Gary Larson had a wonderful uh, run with those year after year with his cartoons. And they'll have things like vocabulary. This one is, is a vocabulary one of forgotten English. Some of the words are, I would say, sillily archaic and that, you know, no one's ever going to use them. But here's one I think that may turn up from time to time. A, a chiffonnier, which is the French word for a rag picker. What's interesting about this, this, uh, this deck is that it will then explain some of the things that are associated with the word. And I like this tale, which was that on the date in question, it was the 190th birthday of Eugene René Pobel. He was a Parisian attorney, university professor, diplomat, and civic administrator whose surname was curiously borrowed by the French to refer to the millions of lowly garbage cans in use today. And no, we did not know that a Pobel was a French garbage can, although we were aware of the fact that the French did refer to urinals as Vespasians, after the Roman emperor who made a bundle by taxing public urinals in ancient Rome. When his son complained to him that this was somewhat undignified, Vespasian allegedly pulled out a silver coin and pointed to it and said, it doesn't stink. Anyway, Pobel made uh, an even more important um, contribution to society than having garbage cans named after himself. He took part in Europe's earliest organized attempt at rubbish removal and recycling. As the population of Paris approached 2 million toward the end of the 19th century, it had become clear that ever more refuse needed to be collected and nobody was interested in solving this huge problem 
until Pobel stepped forward. He forced disgruntled landlords to provide a trio of lidded communal containers for their tenants' recycling, one for general waste, a second for paper and cloth, and a third for glass, pottery, and oddly, oyster shells. Now, I had to pause at this point to realize that Pobel lived from 1831 to 1907, and before he died, he was instrumental in getting a three-can system in Paris, which we got in America, what, in the 1970s? That's pretty pathetic. Reminding us of something we cited on this program several months ago, which was that all over the world, they're celebrating the 50th anniversary of this or that high-speed rail transit system, something which in America we've yet to build. But anyway, back to Pobel. The chiffoniers, the rag pickers, formed the only group other than landlords who felt threatened by Pobel's mandate. He was soon recognized for his ideas and appeared in the Grand Dictionary Universal. But he didn't rest there. He decreed in 1894 that these same building owners pay for connecting their drains to Paris's recently revamped sewage system to help stem the resurgence of waterborne cholera, a concept that is now widespread throughout developed countries. Of course, I think about this and reflect on the fact that living out in the country, as, as I did with my family many moons ago, everybody had septic tanks back then. So the city came in and had a sewage system set up, and most people connected themselves up to the sewer and waste treatment. I do have at least one person in the neighborhood, however, who's still using a pit latrine. No, I'm exaggerating, but but uh, there are believe me, there are still septic tanks in use not far from where I live. And although, as we noted above, they you know the the the, the groundwater percolating through soil, uh, you know, does get cleaned up, but uh, just make sure you don't sink your well nearby. All right, and one other random item, which is the kind of thing you hear on Radio Parallax um, from this forgotten English stack of um, daily reminders, concerns that famous Roman Crassus. If you've ever seen the movie Spartacus, and we hope you have, because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty memorable movie, you will have observed Sir Lawrence Olivier portraying Crassus, although most every damn thing in the movie was, was, was an embellishment. Not all of it, but, but most of it. But Crassus, to be sure, was an important Roman. If you remember your world history, and we hope you do, he was part of the first triumvirate between Caesar, Pompey, and himself. Crassus, by the way, took himself out of that triumvirate by leading an army against what is today's Iran and getting himself betrayed and killed in the process. But he pretty much was universally acknowledged as the richest man in Rome who made his uh, fortune through some rather shady practices. Reputedly, he would show up with a, a fire department that he'd organized and offered to put out the fire of the building that was currently burning, provided that once he had done so, the owners sold it to him at a fire sale price. Anyway, the notepad summary of Crassus included the fact that he still ranks among the top 10 wealthiest people of all time. He reportedly earned as much as about 32,000 average Romans. His fortune back in the day was calculated at about 200 million Roman sesterces, which would be about $170 billion today, adjusted for inflation. But here's the punchline to all this that I really like. Crassus's name meant thick, gross, dense, or coarse in Latin, or at least came to. 
And both the French and English decided to borrow the term many centuries later, that is the term crass, to refer to a kind of egotistical and vulgar individual. Anyway, we can't get enough of that kind of stuff here on the show, and, and we, we hope you feel the same way. We mean by that, of course, the origins of different words, not, not, not vulgar and crass people. Frankly, we've had quite enough of those. All right, moving right along, we have some excellent news here for coffee drinkers. As you are perhaps well aware, there is an issue currently of the fact that the climate on planet Earth appears to be changing and getting warmer. This is bad news on so many fronts, but it's, interestingly, bad news in particular for coffee drinkers. Currently, there are two types of of coffee beans out there, Arabica and Robusta. Arabica is regarded as the superior coffee bean, but rising global temperatures are making it harder to farm. By 2050, about half the land on which it currently is grown will be thought to be unproductive. So, what are the people at Chase and Sanborn and Starbucks going to do? Well, it turns out that researchers from England's Royal Botanical Gardens at Kew say the solution may rise in coffee stenophylla. This is a coffee species that hasn't been seen in the wild since 1954, although it was actually farmed, cultivated uh, commercially as late as the 1920s. I guess back in the 20s, they, the farmers thought that it wasn't going to be able to compete with the other beans, and they just sort of let it go, after which it was thought to be extinct in many of the places where it once grew, including Guinea and Sierra Leone. But wouldn't you know it, two small wild populations were discovered in Sierra Leone in 2018. Now, as you might guess, the jungles in Sierra Leone are pretty warm. The Q team calculated that this variant of coffee grows best at temperatures averaging 76.8 Fahrenheit. Averaging 77 degrees Fahrenheit? Oh, that's warm. That's 12 degrees higher than for Arabica. So, it looks like they can grow this stuff, but how does it taste, you ask? Well, we're glad you posed that question because apparently in blind taste tests, more than 80% of coffee connoisseurs couldn't tell the difference between Stenophylla and Arabica. Kew Gardens' head of coffee research told the BBC.com it's not going to be in coffee shops in the next couple of years, but I think within five to seven years we'll see it entering the market as a niche coffee, as a high-value coffee, and then after that I think it will become more common. So at least there's one one fewer thing to worry about as, as the earth heats up. You will still be able to get a Frappuccino. And in other good news regarding trees, which is a segue we've never used before, we note that they continue to make progress in efforts to bring back the American chestnut. The story of the chestnut is is quite a horrific one. We've talked about it more than once on this program. In North America, in the eastern part anyway, the chestnut used to be one of the keystone species. The chestnut itself is highly edible, and the timber from chestnut trees was pretty good stuff. Notes the Sierra Club, the trees were massive, fast-growing, and rot-resistant. It was easy to mill into cabin logs, furniture, fence posts, and railroad ties. After being harvested, it re-sprouted in 20 years and was ready for the saw again. In fall, the chestnuts piled up in carpets half a foot thick. Settler families, and no doubt the Indians before that, collected 
Settler families collected and sold them by the bushel, and no doubt Native Americans uh, made them a major part of their diet before that. No mistake in the fact that the chestnut was a wonderful tree. But wouldn't you know it, starting in 1904, a fungal blight arrived in America from Asia. And it turned out that although trees in Asia were fairly resistant to this fungus, the trees in North America were not. And between 1904 and 1940, 3.5 billion, with a B, American chestnut trees succumbed. My grandpa had a couple of chestnut trees, and I well remember how much we enjoyed eating those boiled nuts. And I must confess, I never have tried to this date chestnuts that were roasted on an open fire. But I can attest to the fact that they are delicious. So obviously, bringing back the chestnut would be a very good thing for North America, and people are trying to do just that. In fact, it's reported that there is a small army of biologists, ecologists, foresters, and activists who are passionately dedicated to bringing back the iconic tree. In fact, there's an organization, the American Chestnut Foundation, TACF, which has been working very hard to crossbreed what few American chestnuts are left with some of their Asian counterparts. The problem with this is that reportedly, although the Asian counterparts are resistant, they're not completely resistant. So even if you create a tree that's 15 sixteenths North American chestnut, it will still be, you know, somewhat vulnerable. Now, the, the stats on this, that these, these crossbred trees are... Um, are resistant but only have a survival rate of about 20% when confronted with the fungus. So, others have gotten the idea that we might be able to genetically re-engineer chestnuts to resist the fungus. It turns out that the fungus's secret to success is that it secretes oxalic acid, a toxin that kills the chestnut cells. By the way, if you've ever chewed on sour grass, the sour in that does come from oxalic acid. Anyway, some researchers have gotten the idea that you could introduce into the chestnut cells an enzyme known as OXO3, which protects them from the disease caused by oxalic acid because it makes an enzyme that chews up the oxalic acid. So genetically speaking, Darling 58, which is the, um, the GMO of the chestnut, is an entirely American chestnut with one extra gene which gives it resistance to the bacteria. And, of course, there's a lot of resistance to genetic modified organisms for a good reason. We've talked about it a lot, and we'll talk about it again. Most of the problems related to GMOs are not with the organism itself, but rather how it gets marketed and some of the brutal practices by Monsanto. And the fact that when they come up with something like Roundup and tell us that it's safe, well, it just may not be as safe as they say. Anyway, what they're going to do with this chestnut variety is hanging in the balance currently. And frankly, at the moment, I'm not sure what position to take on this. Seems like it might be a good idea. Sarah Fern Fitzsimmons, who is the director of the TACF, notes that the path to resistance requires both the variable Chinese-derived resistance of the back-crossing strains and the OXO gene expression of the transgenetics. I don't know. I'm inclined to think that in this case, this, this particular GMO might be okay. But one of the main problems with GMOs is that the genes get inserted into certain species can sometimes make their way out of that species. Like, for example, a weed that is picked up 
the gene from the Roundup-resistant corn, and itself becomes an incredibly resistant nuisance weed because now you can't kill it with Roundup. Anyway, more to say about that the second half of today's program, but we need to take a break. And anyway, although it is well over 200 days until Christmas is going to show up, we can't resist this particular piece of outro music. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around. we got lots more. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by a choir And folks dressed up like Eskimos Everybody knows a turkey and some mistletoe 